Hi, thanks for coming. So, um, as we get toward Rosh Hashanah, the, uh, and every day, by the way, um, it's, it's, it's increasingly important to understand uh, the big picture. Um, in other words, uh, why is there a world and why were we created? Two, two important questions, right? And the reason why uh, it's very important to have a very very large overview of, of the, the purpose of everything is because one doesn't want to be laboring uh, for the wrong purpose. One doesn't want to be directing their energies in a way that isn't going to be ultimately consistent with, with the perfection of the world and with the eternality of their own souls. So, so it's very, very important for someone to, um, as my mother used to say, to keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. You have to, <laughs> you have to know why you're here and what you're doing so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing. Right? That's, that just makes sense. The challenge is, the problem is, is that this world is so, so much of a labyrinth, so much of a maze, there's so much sensory bombardment and we're being pulled by our responsibilities in so many different directions that even if a person has some concept of what they're supposed to be doing or a concept of truth, it's very hard to stay focused on what that is. And that is part of the genius of the, of the, of the Jewish calendar is that it, uh, it reminds you constantly of, of that big overview. And, and, and it does so in exciting and amazing different ways. Pesach is one type of reminder. Sukkot is another type of reminder. Tisha B'Av is another type of reminder. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are yet another type of reminder. And if there's really a sort of like a, a bottom line type of reminder, like not just sort of like something conceptual and beautiful or, or focusing on <clears throat> a particular aspect on what we need to perfect within ourselves whether it's what is this concept of freedom or shelter or truth or whatever it is, the bottom line is we inhabit a body and we have a certain set of responsibilities and are we living up to our responsibilities? That type of tachlis, bottom line, kind of like, you know, recognition is really Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So that's really kind of like Kind of like the acid test, like that which brings everything into focus and brings it all together. So, so given that we're on the threshold of these days, it's, it's, it's especially important to look at the big picture in order to remind ourselves and to focus ourselves on that finish line, if you will, to make sure that we're, we're, heading, we're heading in the right direction. <clears throat> so, so given that, I think it's appropriate to define the word success because everyone wants to be a success. You can't, you know, if you walk up to someone, let's say you have a favorite food, let's say you love asparagus, right? And you walk up to someone and say, do you love asparagus? Knowing in your heart that it's the world's greatest food, they might say no, which would be sort of like... (laughs) Frustrating because you're already not talking about the same thing. But if you walk up to everyone in the world and say to them, would you like to be a success? Everyone will say yes. 
everyone will say yes. So given the fact, oh, thank you, yeah. Given the fact that everyone wants to be a success, and not only does everyone want to be a success, but everyone, thank you. Sure. Given the fact that everyone wants to be a success, um, then we have to move to the next step, which is, what is the definition of success? You have to define it. Because, because you, these larger concepts, unless they're very, very actualized in your, in your mind, will, will just be amorphous traps. I mean, that's one of the, again, that's one of the real um, distinctions between Torah and, um, and, and other religions. Torah, and we say Torah emet, the Torah is truth. What, what Torah does, like leagues beyond, dimensions beyond any other, uh, any other approach, is it defines every single moment and gives you a point of access in every single moment. You know, we were talking about it the other day a little bit. Some people get turned on and, you know, it's like, they had a good Shabbos experience or they felt inspired or whatever it is and they want to take the next step and then at some point all of a sudden they hit, get hit by the tidal wave of halacha. You know, you know, it's sort of like, I have to do that and this and that. What are you doing to me? I just like, it really enjoyed that melody and now you're telling me how to put my shoes and socks on. Like, what happened? You know? So, the point is, the point is that the rabbis are not control freaks. It's not like, okay, we got inspiration and we've got domination of your lifestyle. We've got everything. No, that's not, that's not what it is. You know, it's, the point is, is that God is everywhere. God fills all of things. That means there's no such thing as a secular moment. There is no such thing as a point devoid of interaction with the divine. There is no such thing. Everything is a, is a conversation with God, whether you're talking or not. All of your actions, your entire life, is an ongoing conversation with God. That's what it is. So therefore, since no matter what you do, wherever you are, and again, let's go back to putting your shoes and socks on, there has to be a way to make every single moment in your life divine. And since most of your life is really spent, you know, dwelling within what we would call the mundane, it makes equal sense that there would be a set of approaches of how to relate to those mundane moments. Again, putting on your shoes and socks. So all of the halacha, all of the Torah law that exists... The mitzvot, badly translated as commandments, they're really, as Reb Shlomo says, divine pathways. And halacha, badly translated as Jewish law, which just means the way. Just means the way. You know, it's like, it's like people think that the, the Eastern approach, the Zen approach, wow, like Zen, flow, you know, hey, that's ours, you know. Halacha means the way. I mean, you can't get more Zen-like than the way, please, you know? And that's ours, okay? So it's not about law and commandments. 
It's about the way, flow, and pathways. That's what it is. And so it makes sense. Not only does it make sense, but it's logical that there would be a way to elevate and to connect to God in every single moment. And now we have to know how to do that. And since there's so many types of moments and so many types of situations, there is necessarily so much halacha. It's not about control. It's about giving people over the keys to how to access moments in their life. That's what it is. Okay. So now, we have to define success. We need to define success. So now, let me ask you something. You walk into a casino, and you buy $100 worth of chips, and you're on a run. And after a while, you've turned those $100 worth of chips into $10,000 worth of chips, then into $10 million worth of chips, okay? Then you go for double or nothing, and you lose it all. (laughs) And then you put down another $50,000, and you lose all that. (laughs) So let me ask you something. Was that trip to the casino a success? No, I don't think anyone would say that was a success. I don't. You know? You had a good run there. That's for sure. There's no denying that. But would you call it a success? You wouldn't call it a success. Because you left seriously in the hole. That's just, that's just what it was. So based on that, I would like to suggest to you that a definition of success means how did it finish in the long run? Ultimately, what was the end of the story? Did it finish? Did it finish on a high point? Because that ultimately seems to be the measure, the litmus test of whether it was a success or not. Okay, we're talking again in macro, very broad terms here, but we need to because we've got to isolate what it is that we're going for. Okay, so now, you know, as we say so many times, the, the, the beauty of the Hebrew language, we call it Lashon HaKadosh, the holy tongue. It says God spoke the world into creation, that, that the Hebrew letters form the, the fabric, the fabric of time and space and reality. So, so Hebrew words themselves, the Torah words themselves are, are blueprints for not just the definition of the word, but the DNA, the essence, and a roadmap and a lesson in how to achieve what the word itself is describing. So now let's look at the word for victory in Hebrew, netzach. That means victory, it means success, victory. Netzach, amazingly, also means eternity. In other words, there's a relationship between whether someone is victorious and how it is in the end. That's part of the definition of victory is netzach, is eternity. So you see, the Hebrew language itself is expressing this concept of the casino example that we just gave, that how it works out in the end is the defining definition of victory. Victory and eternality. Same word. Same word to bring out this concept. Okay. So now, let's go a little bit further in terms of how we can, how we can achieve this. Okay. So... I thought of an example um, uh, last week 
um, that I want to share with you, and it will be a gateway into a further discussion, trying to get into more the nitty-gritty of this. Okay? Now imagine, imagine someone gives you a goblet, and it's a beautiful, beautiful goblet. It's this hand-blown masterpiece, this creation with its jeweled, and just the artistry and the wisdom that's put into its design is just, just, just tremendous. It's really a masterpiece. And someone gives you this as a gift. So you have this awesome goblet, right? Now imagine your back is really itchy. And it's really itchy in a place that you can't quite reach it. So what do you do? You take the goblet and you use it to scratch your back. Now let me ask you this question. Was that a successful moment or not? The answer is, it depends on how you look at it. If you define it from the point of view of the person who had an itchy back, that was a successful moment. If you define it from the point of view of the person who crafted the goblet, it was a total travesty. So, so the question is, when we go through life, we have to have in mind, like, who ultimately gets to decide the definition of success? You know, I once said something, I was very proud of myself. I was like 13 years old. And I said, God doesn't have to be, He is. I thought that was pretty deep. I actually still think that's pretty deep. <laughs> Um, in other words, you know, it, it used to be, there used to be a, a joke, I think like in the 60s or something like that, it was a very famous piece of uh, graffiti. And it said, uh, God is dead, and then it was signed Nietzsche. And then underneath it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, and it signed God. <laughs> so, we get to say whatever we like to in this lifetime. The most heretical things. The most anti-God things. And the crazy thing is God keeps us alive as we say them. And gives us, feeds us so that we have strength to make a decision whether to say the greatest blasphemies. But if a person thinks that I get to have the last word, (laughs) well, okay, that's... That's one approach. That's one approach. But I would suggest that it's a very, it's a very problematic approach. And the reason why it's a very problematic approach is because we have a soul. And our soul is eternal. Our soul is forever. It lives beyond this world and beyond this lifetime. But it goes further than that. The eternality of the soul is so enormous and so lengthy and so grand that in comparison, this lifetime, and we should all live long in health and happiness to 120, this lifetime is it's a snap compared to eternity. So, so a person who is wise 
And the Gemara says, who is the wise person? The wise person is the person who sees to the end. Right? Sees what's coming, is able to extrapolate. So a wise person has to be focused on where their life is heading. You know? You know, I'll tell you something. At one of, just, you know, there's certain moments like, I heard in the name of the Rambam that he talks about, he gives an example where a person is traveling through the desert, which, you know, back then, depending on where you lived, that was, that was not an uncommon experience, you know, caravans going through vast deserts, that was, a, that was part of their reality. I took the D train to the Bronx in high school every day. That's a very different reality. But, you know, they, they would go through vast deserts. That was a real thing. And you can imagine there were, there were big sand dunes. And, but in, in the desert, you have at night, especially the winds start to blow, and you have sandstorms, and it rearranges the geography of the landscape so that if you're, basing your, if you're basing your directions, and you know, no one wants to get lost in the middle of the desert, right? If you're, which is this world, by the way, um, if you're basing your directions on even enormous sand dunes, then it's a real problem because the next day, that sand dune's not there anymore. And now, how am I going to find my direction? See, this is the, this is the amazing aspect about the Torah itself. The Torah is discussing all eternity. People make a very simple mistake. They think that, well, wait a second, the Torah must be outdated because show me, show me computer chips in the Torah. Show me space travel in the Torah. It's not, I don't see it written about, therefore this must be an ancient, outdated text. Okay, that's on a very superficial level. But the Torah itself is addressing truth, that which is true forever. So it put it into the language of the time it was given in order to make it understandable in the time that it was given. So there, there's that aspect to it. But that's just its most su- superficial peel, its most superficial layer. It's discussing all of reality, eternity. And the sand dunes themselves, these are the mores of the times that we live in. And they shift what is considered absolutely, oh, you're a primitive mind if you don't believe this today. 500 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, you know, they were saying the opposite. And who's to say 50 years, 20 years from now, whatever it is, they'll be saying the opposite again of what they're saying today. So if one puts their focus and uses as their North Star sand dunes, which are just the political social mores of the age that we live in, Night comes, the winds come, it sweeps everything, everything's different. You don't want to do that. You want to put your North Star on that which is eternal, which is the Torah. So, so, so the Rambam, in his example, gives an example of how it's night in the desert. And sometimes there's a flash of lightning. And in the nighttime, all of a sudden you see where, where the direction goes. You see, you, see, you see where you're going, okay? Which direction to point in?
So I'm mixing metaphors a little bit here, but but I uh, went off on a different point. But the, the the point that the Rambam is trying to bring out is is not that you direct yourself based on the landscape. That's not the that's not the point. The point is is that the way God interacts with us in this world is he gives us flashes of light, flashes of inspiration. And then based on that, we have to hold on to them. And we have to use them to direct ourselves. Because they come, and then they go, and it's nighttime, and it's darkness again. So I just want to share with you a, 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 a flashpoint that I had. I was being walked home by a host one time. And, you know, the idea is you walk someone, Daladamas, maybe, that's maybe eight feet approximately, outside, and, and it says that, that that's a way to properly escort someone and they stay with you, even though you're parting company. It's a, a, it's a Torah thing to do. So, so this person was walking with me and continued to walk with me and then crossed the street and walked another block. And then crossed the street and walked another block. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is really, this is something. And then he walks another block. And then I looked at his feet. And then I looked at my feet. And you know something? To the the passerby, what's the difference between his feet walking on cement and my feet walking on cement? both heading in the same direction. What's the difference? Looks the same. And this flash, this flash in the desert, so to speak, I realize I'm just walking home. He's in the process of doing a mitzvah which is going to live forever. His footsteps, every step that he's taking right now is forever. This is his olam So from the outside, something can look the same. And yet, if you know what the circumstances are, you know, like, I want to give a phrase for this. Like, I was walking home. He was forevering. <laughs> you know, when a, when a person does a mitzvah, they're forevering. Because what they're doing is creating an aspect of their olam haba, of their eternity, which goes on forever. It doesn't end. Even if you forgot about all the good things that you did, God strictly catalogs them. Strictly catalogs them. And they're with you forever. You know, it's like, we can't even imagine what, what, what the next world is, where our soul goes forever. We can't even imagine it. It's another dimension. We don't have our body. Our, our inside, our soul is, is interacting with God with, where every single moment is another, like, like Rabbi Green talks about it, like, like, and then the next moment after that, like, adopt it. And the next moment after that, you know, just, and that's eternity. You know, if you wonder why people are so into heaven, that's why they're so into heaven. Because it's heavenly. Right? It's really, it's just wow. And it doesn't stop being wow. So it's worth investing in. It's worth investing in. It's just logical. It's just logical. You know? So now, 
Let's get back to this example of the person scratching his back with the goblet. So, yes, the person was a success. The person was a success. He had a itch on his back, <clears throat> and he used this kingly goblet <laughs> to scratch it, and now his back doesn't itch anymore. Success. If you look at it from his point of view. <laughs> if you look at it from the goblet maker's point of view. Also success. Not a success. A travesty. <laughs> I, Bernie, I love you, but hold on to your thought, please. I, I've got to develop this. Bernie, we have a format for this particular lecture. Please wait until the end. Why? Okay. All right. Let me address your point since you're bringing it up. You see, if the goblet maker... What was the intention? If his intention was to please the was to please whoever purchased it. And that through this goblet, the, the person who received the goblet got a moment of pleasure. Then you're right. From the goblet maker's point of view, it was a success. 100%. So now we have to ask ourselves what I think is a deeper question, which is, did God create this world to merely entertain us? to merely give us pleasure? Or did he have something more specific in mind? So we have to look into what the goblet maker, so to speak, aim, point of view was. So if it was just merely to satisfy our desires of the moment, and that's why he created a world, I would suggest he did a lousy job. Because I see a lot of people in misery, in pain. I see wars. I see injustice. And if this whole thing was just a party, I see a really lousy party going on. We designed it to be useful to the owner. No, absolutely. Categorically not. Categorically not. Categorically not. There is something greater that is intended by the creation of the world which is the perfection of the world, not just the world as a playground for, for, for human beings. The world is not the goblet, sir. Okay. So, so, of course, there's a lot of beauty in this world as well. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty. And there's a lot of awesome, awesome things going on. I don't mean to suggest, God forbid, that that this world is a bad place. God created this world, and He says outright, several times, it's good. This world is good. But what I'm trying to say is, is that if God's sole intent, if His sole intent was to create a place that would be an ongoing place of sensual pleasure, then He could have done that very easily. We see all the elements of it in the world. We see all the elements that would provide for a very successful sensual experience in this world. We see it. This world is, 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 is blossomed. It's just, it's, 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 it's chock full of these things. And God, who's perfect, certainly could have arranged all of these different things that we could access them and it would never stop. 
It would be the ultimate, ultimate party. And yet by the very fact that you see that this isn't the reality of the world, then we have to ask God who is perfect, why didn't he make that the reality of this world? And so you have to think, well, then obviously this is more than a playground, this world. Something is going on in this world. What is it that's going on in this world? Why didn't God decide to make it the greatest ongoing party in the world? And the answer is, is that God wants something more from us. That God has made us partners in the perfection of the world. That there is a perfect creation that's coming. But we're not in that place yet. It's a theme that I've been saying since day one and I can't let go of because I believe that it's so essential to understanding our own lives and the world around us. And that is that the world is still in the process of being created. You know, the example that I always like to give is imagine someone's making brownies and you've got a bowl with a pile of brownie mix and a cracked raw egg on top of it and someone walks in, dips their finger in the raw egg and the brownie mix and says, these are terrible brownies. And it's like, wait, it's not finished yet. That's where we are in the world. That's where we are in the world. There's like, there's beauty and there's pleasure and there's goodness and the world is good. But God has made us partners with Him to bring about its perfection. Now that perfection, actually, a taste of it exists in the world in a very, in a very real way. And it's called Shabbos. It's called Shabbos. You have something in Torah Hashkafa. It's called Surah and Chomer. Surah means the form of something. Chomer means its actual material shape. Okay? So another way of expressing Surah and Chomer would be to say the soul and the body. Surah and Chomer. Now Shabbos is the soul of the world. Shabbos is the soul of the world, and I'll tell you something even deeper. Shabbos is the soul of time. It's not just the world itself, this physical entity, this globe, right? It's not just this, this physical thing that needs a soul, but time itself has a soul. And the soul of time is menucha, is rest. So let's go through this for a moment. So, Chomer, which means materialism, is the same word in Hebrew as Chamor, which means donkey. Because in Torah thought, the donkey itself is the beast of burden. Like, that's what they would use. That was, that was the station wagon or the pickup truck back then. That's what people would load their things on when they wanted to transport them. That was, God constructed the donkey to be uniquely able to bear loads and to still get from place to place. So it makes sense that the donkey, chamor, is chomer. It represents physicality. Now, isn't it interesting 
Let's go to the Navi, to the prophet Zechariah. It's in chapter 9, verse 9. It's a description of the Mashiach, of the Redeemer. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zion, shout for joy, O daughter of Yerushalayim, for behold, your king will come to you. The, the, the Messiah, everyone should know, is actually going to be a king of Israel. The king of Israel. Sometimes that gets lost. Sometimes we, we think that when we mention the, we say, Melech HaMashiach, we think that we're just sort of being, um, adorning him with, with praise. Meaning like, king, like you're a king, like I'm giving you a compliment. It's not a compliment. According to the Torah, the Mashiach will actually, just like David HaMelech was king of Israel, and Shlomo HaMelech was king of Israel, the Messiah will be the king technically. Like, that's his job. He'll actually be the king of Israel. And he'll be appointed by uh, a prophet with the, you know, the Sanhedrin will be there. He'll be a king. The king. And that's why he has to be descended from King David. Because that's the kingly line. He must be a king. For behold, your king will come to you, righteous and victorious is he. Listen to this. A humble man riding upon a donkey. And the Pasa continues, upon a fall, upon a, a calf a she donkey, of she donkeys. Okay, so, so in other words, the one who rides atop Homer, the donkey, which represents all physicality, the one who rides on top of it is the unique personage who has mastered physicality. And that's why the Mashiach is represented as the one riding atop a donkey because he is the one who has symbolizes the mastery of physicality, of, of materialism. Okay, so now... Let's look into Shabbos and our relation to it and what it is. So now, listen to this. Shabbos is the tzura. Shabbos is the form. And the world is the chomer. Okay? Now, what's, what's so intense about this is that Shabbos occupies a few different levels of thought at the same time, and you'll see something interesting that comes from this. Shabbos represents, when we talk about the Messianic era, the Zman Atikun, the, 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 the perfection that the world is driving toward, and which God has invested us to be partners to help bring about through mitzvot, The Messianic era is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So in other words, Shabbos represents the perfection of the world. It's not just the soul of the world, it's the perfection of the world. So to help you just, to give you um, kind of like, just to help explain this notion a little bit more, I want to just dip into... um, Greek philosophy for a moment to, to maybe help us to understand what the Torah is saying on a deeper level. 
The Greeks had a similar idea to this. So they would say that there's a chair, for instance. So imagine a chair that you're sitting in. And then they had something called chairness, which is the idealized, idealized form of the chair. It existed as an abstraction, but it was the idealized form of the chair. And then you have a chair itself, which is a physical representation of that idealized form. Okay? I think that's a nice example and gives us a better handle to get into what this whole, what, what we're saying about Shabbos. Shabbos is in the idealized form of the entire world. It's, it's, it's a representation of the perfected world, of the messianic era, Yom Shekulo Shabbos. It's the potential of the world, and it's the destiny of the world. But what's so cool about it is that it doesn't just exist in the mind. It's also every seven days. So it exists in reality at the same time that it's the more fuller, grander vision of it hovers and awaits us. So how does it exist in reality? Well, let's think about it. You can't... Okay, Shabbos comes. Um, boy, I want to really eat something nice on Shabbos. So what I'm going to do is, it's Shabbos, so I'm going to go to my favorite restaurant. No, can't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to go to my favorite restaurant. I'm going to go to the supermarket. <laughs> can't do that. Oh, you mean I've got to do all that beforehand? That's right. Okay. So I did all my shop. I did all my shopping. Got it all done before Shabbos. Okay. Now it's Shabbos. Now I have the day off. Now I'm going to slice and dice and cook up something nice. Can't do that. <laughs> oh, you mean I have to have prepared everything before Shabbos? Yeah, everything's got to be prepared before Shabbos, so that when you enter into Shabbos. It really is a miniature of the Garden of Eden where everything is already prepared. Everything is prepared already. Now listen to this. I'll tell you something else. On Shabbos, one of the laws of Shabbos is you can't make specific plans for after Shabbos. I can't say to you on Shabbos, I'll meet you by the Arco movie theater on Wilshire at 9.30 and we'll see... Nim's Island. I don't know. <laughs> My kids were just watching that. Okay. So, <laughs> so, believe it or not, you're breaking Shabbos if you if you say that. Why? Because you just put a ceiling on Shabbos. Shabbos is forever. There's no tonight. There's no tomorrow on Shabbos. Now, but you know what I want to do. I want to talk about all my work problems on Shabbos. This guy's giving me a hard time at the office, and that guy said, he, you know, he owes me money. I did a job for him, and I billed him three times. I still haven't gotten the money. No. <laughs> There's no yesterday on Shabbos. <laughs> There's no tomorrow on Shabbos. Shabbos is now. Shabbos is forever land. You want a forever? 
Shabbos you get to forever. Because it's all right now. Now listen to this. You want to see a blueprint of this? Those of you who have been attending these talks, how do we say the word now in Shabbos? Like, not, not was, not will be, but is. Hoveh. Hey, vav, hey. Now, we've learned that the letter hey is, is a vessel. Okay? And in the name of Hashem, we have yud and hey, and vav and hey. So, the bottom hey stands for this world. Because this world itself is a vessel for, you know, everything above it. That's why this world is so intense. Even though you can't see, you know, everything above it, nonetheless, what you do in this world is affecting all the heavens. So, this world is the bottom hay, the vessel, everything above it. Then you have, of course, God exceeds this world and His dimensions beyond this world, but follow me still. Then you have above, right, which is the, always the connector. And then you have the next hay, yud and hay, right? And vav and hay. So what's that first hay? So that first hay is, is right under the yud, right? Yud and hay. So that yud, which is radiating that ultimate divine light, right? That's the highest aspect, right, of divine light. And it's going into that first vessel, that first hay, yud and hay and vav and hay, right? That first hay is the next world. It's receiving the light directly from the Yud. That vessel is the next world. Okay? So now, what did we say Shabbos is? Shabbos is forever. And it's in this world. It's right now. You get to be in the moment. Because there's no yesterday and there's no tomorrow. There's just right now. It's just Hoveh, Hey Vav Yud. Which means, it's this world, Hey connecting to the next world, the upper hay, and it's all right now. So, so we see, see, one of the, one of the amazing things about the way God constructed this world is everything is in microcosms. Microcosms means where you can take a, 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 a little bit of something and within that little bit of something, it contains the whole. Okay? There's so many microcosms going on. Our soul is a little bit of God. Okay, it's not the entirety of God, obviously, but it's a little bit of God. Shabbos, is a little bit of the next world that actually has a foothold in this world where the bottom hay, vav, hay, the bottom hay is connecting to the next world. It's, it's an entree point. It's the, it's, the, it's the porthole into the next world while you're still in this world. It says each of the mitzvahs contains an aspect of all other 613 mitzvahs. 
So when you do one mitzvah with kavana, with holy intention, you're connecting to every other mitzvah. Every mitzvah contains an aspect of every other mitzvah in the Torah. Not only that, but every Jewish soul contains a spark of every other Jewish soul in the entire world. And by the way, that's not just a lofty idea. You see that in halacha. You see that in the here and now, the nitty-gritty of the way we conduct our lives. I'll give you an example of it. You have something called a bruchel of atala, <clears throat> which means a blessing that's said in vain. One of the... Um, one of the sort of counterintuitive things that people find out when they first learn Torah is that a person would think, the more blessings I say, the, the better off I am. What, what could be better than just saying multitudes of blessings? And if you mean that in the abstract way, like blessings meaning good wishes or prayers or things like that, then you're 100% right. But if you mean it in the very technical sense of I'm eating a grape right now, and I say, and I take a bite and I go, that was so awesome. And now, oh, I can't wait to bless God again for this grape. And now I say, and I take another bite. The rabbis say, cut it out! <laughs> Don't do that! You already said the blessing. You want to thank God for how great a grape it is, you can spend the rest of your life doing that. But don't make another blessing on it that's a very, it's a very specific thing that you've done. Alright? So we're not into bruchel of atalas. We don't just throw away, throw around Hashem's name just because we're, we have a moment of inspiration. We have to have tremendous yira. We use it when it's appropriate, right? So now, with that in mind, let's say I make Kiddush. It's a mitzvah on Shabbos to make Kiddush where you talk about how God created the world and it's, you, you, you speak out the sanctity of the day. It's a mitzvah to say Kiddush on Shabbos. So, and it involves Brei Priyagathanit. It involves a blessing. So I say, Prokhatashem at the end of Kiddush, Brei Priyagathanit, and I drink it. Now someone walks into the room who hasn't heard Kiddush yet. And let's say they don't know how to make their own Kiddush. So, it's an interesting question. Do I make Kiddush for them or do I not make Kiddush for them? Well, you could say, if I'm going to say Brei Priyagathan again, I've already made Kiddush. We just said you can't, that's a bruchel of Atala, I can't make Kiddush again, I just made Kiddush. You can make Kiddush 15 million times 